Today is Tuesday, April 19th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedu Afo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, Russia claims Western sanctions have failed as it begins Donbass offensive in eastern Ukraine. In a video address, Putin says the economic blitzkrieg strategy hasn't worked, adding the initiators themselves have paid a heavy price. Washington and Seoul agree on strong response to North Korea's recent missile tests. Underline that we have not closed the door on diplomacy with the DPRK. And I once again call on Pyongyang to pursue a diplomatic path with us. And Turkey launches a ground and air cross-border offensive against Kurdish militants in northern Iraq. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia's offensive to take control of eastern Ukraine is in full swing. He said in a video address Monday, quote, Now we can already state that the Russian troops have begun the battle for Donbass, for which they have been preparing for a long time, unquote. He said a, quote, significant part of the entire Russian army is now concentrated on the offensive, unquote. He vowed, quote, no matter how many Russian troops are driven here, we will fight. We will defend ourselves. We will do it every day, unquote. President Vladimir Putin claims the sanctions policy implemented by Western countries against Russia has failed. Associated Press correspondent Charles de la Desma reports. In a video address, Putin says the economic blitzkrieg strategy hasn't worked, adding the initiators themselves have paid a heavy price with inflation and unemployment growth and economic dynamics worsening in the U.S. and the European countries. Putin then noted substantial inflation figures in Russia, calling for his government to support our citizens and help them deal with the wave of inflation. I'm Charles Tilladesma. Credit rating agency S&P says Russia has defaulted on its foreign debt obligations because it offered bondholders payment in rubles and not dollars. A default is one of the clearest signals that the sanctions imposed by the U.S. and other countries are having their intended effect on the Russian economy. The Biden administration appears set to discuss the international economic impact of the Russian invasion and potentially Ukraine's reconstruction. The topic is part of the November G220 summit agenda, a plan likely to create a further rift in the economic forum. White House Bureau Chief Party with Askuara has this story. As the war rages on in Ukraine, President Joe Biden wants Russia removed from the group of 20 largest economies and for the invasion's fallout to be included on the G20 summit agenda. White House Press Secretary Jan Psaki told VOA. It is not uncommon for events that are impacting the global community as Ukraine is and the Russian invasion of Ukraine to play a central role at international forum. And their economic recovery and rebuilding and reconstruction is going to be something that the global community is going to be involved in and address. This puts Indonesian President Joko Widodo, this year's G20 chair and host of the November summit in Bali, in a bind. He and other middle power members have their own agenda. Dina Praptora Harja, co-founder of the Jakarta-based think tank Synergy Policies via Skype. President Widodo's desire is to make sure that the G20 mandate uh, can be upheld. Uh, make sh- making sure that as a representative of the emerging economies, the agenda of recovery from pandemic, including the prices of uh, energy, uh, basic prices of goods, uh, can be affordable for all. Following its 2014 annexation of Crimea, Moscow was kicked out of the group of eight leading industrial nations, now known as the G7. 
However, it's unlikely Russia will be removed from the G20, a much wider grouping with more competing interests and no formal mechanism to expel a member. So far, Russian President Vladimir Putin intends to attend the summit with Beijing support. Gregory B. Poling, Center for Strategic and International Studies via Skype. President Biden isn't going to be in the room with them. I imagine Prime Minister Trudeau won't, several of the Europeans won't, which puts Jakarta in a very tough position here because are they willing to trade Putin's attendance for having five or six others not come? Ambassador Diantrian Sahjani, a G20 co-Sherpa, told VOA that Indonesia will listen to members' views while maintaining G20's role as an economic cooperation forum. Responding to criticism that Western demands to exclude Moscow, disrupt the summit's agenda, and create division, Saki said that Putin has shown himself to be a pariah in the world and has no place at international forums. Pat Suida Kuswara, VOA News at the White House. The U.S. Special Envoy for North Korea says Washington and Seoul have agreed on a need for a strong response to North Korea's recent spat of missile tests though they remain open to dialogue with the country. Sung Kim flew to South Korea on Monday for talks two days after North Korea conducted a new type of missile test. It is extremely important for the United Nations Security Council to send a clear signal to the DPRK that we will not accept its escalatory tests as normal. Also agreed on the need to maintain the strongest possible joint deterrent capability on the peninsula. And as Ambassador No mentioned, this is why our militaries are exercising and training together, uh, like the exercise that started just today. Underline that we have not closed the door on diplomacy with the DPRK. And I once again call on Pyongyang to pursue a diplomatic path with us. We remain prepared to meet anywhere without any conditions. Also want to make clear that we have no hostile intent towards the DPRK. That's U.S. Special Envoy for North Korea, Song Kim. Tension remains high in the Korean Peninsula after North Korea claimed to have tested a new missile, its 13th round of weapons firing this year. Analysts said introduction of a new missile by Pyongyang is an indication that the recursive regime is not ready for peace overtures extended by Washington and the West. For more, I spoke with VOA Seoul Bureau Chief Bill Gallo. If you're asking what they can do to stop these North Korean missile strikes and provocations, the answer is really nothing. And I think people really don't admit that often, but that is the underlying reality here. Now, if you're talking what can they do to sort of respond in a stronger way to sort of deter and encourage North Korea to draw the line at a certain spot and not cross that line, there are several options. Uh, one of which you are seeing this week here in South Korea. The U.S. and South Korean militaries are engaging in joint military exercises. These are regular annual military exercises. However, there is an expectation that they are going to be uh, sort of resuming their full scale after several years of being either scaled back or spread out because of coronavirus and also to support the possibility of chances of diplomacy with North Korea. There's a widespread expectation that very soon these exercises will not only resume as they have this week in a computer simulated fashion, but that they will also soon involve larger weapons, more personnel, and sort of a key aspect of this is that the U.S. and South Korean militaries are becoming more comfortable about publicizing the details of these exercises. North Korea is claiming to have tested a new kind of missile. If it's a new kind of missile, how different are they from what they've been launching prior to now? These are missiles that share a lot of similarities with what they've tested really since 2019 when they resumed missile tests following the diplomacy with Donald Trump. However, this particular missile 
a short-range missile is said by North Korea uh, state media to be related to tactical nuclear weapons. Now, it's important to know that North Korea has the apparent ability to deliver a nuclear weapon, or at least to launch a nuclear weapon across the world, really, including last month was this latest test. A potentially similar, but as of yet not demonstrated task would be for North Korea to deliver a nuclear weapon. North Korea has said it is working on this capability. But it would need to not only have a delivery mechanism, meaning some type of missile like the one launched recently, it would also need to make the nuclear weapon small enough in order to fit on a missile like that. What does that do to our efforts to not only denuclearize the Korean Peninsula, but also to tap down detentions? Definitely countries in the region, primarily South Korea and Japan, are very concerned, and they see these types of weapons tactical nuclear weapons, and even conventional weapons as well, as sort of being the main threat to them, of course. I mean, whenever the U.S. uh, gets concerned about an ICBM or something like this, that's completely understandable because there is the potential for North Korea, at least in theory, to hold U.S. cities hostage, that kind of thing, and to make real credible threats with nuclear weapons. They don't need to have anything like that in order to threaten South Korea and Japan. And in fact, they have for many decades. And sort of this is just the latest technology that shows that North Korea really can be dangerous. This is not so theoretical either. I think we've all seen in Ukraine how Russia has used the threat of tactical nuclear weapon strikes to be able to coerce and deter its uh, enemies. And there is a real fear in this region that if North Korea is able to get technologies like this, that it will use them, begin to use them in very practical ways to advance certain goals that it has, whatever those may be in any given situation. That's VOA Seoul Bureau Chief Bill Gallo speaking with me from the South Korean capital. Amid soaring prices in Turkey, people in the poorest eastern regions of the country are struggling to make ends meet. Many are ethnic Kurds who have long accused Ankara of discrimination. As Herodrigo reports, increasing numbers of men are paying smugglers to take them to the United States, where they hope to find well-paying jobs and a better life. In Agjashar village, high in the mountains of eastern Turkey, the male population is fast dwindling. Life here is tough, often seemingly little changed in centuries. Dried animal dung is used for heating and cooking. Many homes don't have running water. Burhan Özdemir is a resident of the village. All our friends are gone, he says. Some sold their cows, some their animals, they sold their land, and most of them are gone. It's only me left here with two or three of my friends, and we can't leave because we don't have money. Those who had money went to America. They went to work there. Agjashar has seen an exodus of young and middle-aged men driven by the lack of jobs, drawn by opportunities in America and facilitated by smuggling gangs that have recently moved into the village. University student Omer, who did not want to give his family name, is preparing to travel to the U.S. He told VOA, I want to go to America because even if I finish my studies and have a profession, I will not have a good salary. Here, the salary is $300 a month, but over there, it is $3,000. My brother went there recently. He says that he is free there and everything is nice. He will work and send me money and I will go too.
The smugglers have moved into the mountain villages from the nearby province of Agri, next to the Iranian border, among the poorest regions of Turkey. There are no official numbers, but it's estimated that tens of thousands have left Agri in recent years for the United States and Canada. Annual inflation in Turkey hit 61% in April, and wages aren't keeping pace. Jihalis is a resident of Agri. He said the butchers have raised the price of meat, bakeries have raised the price of bread, the poor cannot make a living. Locals told VOA smugglers typically charge around $15,000. This buys migrants a bus ticket to Ankara or Istanbul and a flight to Mexico. They cross the border into the United States, where most are detained as they await asylum claims. The Kurdish migrants frequently cite persecution in Turkey. Store owner Ali Chapkar says his brother left for the U.S. six months ago. For a better life and more money, he says, almost all of the young people are gone. From Agri, around 100 or 150 people go every day. People are hungry. It is a journey driven by poverty. The appeal of a new life in North America is growing as daily life gets more difficult by the day. Henry Ridgewell for VOA News. In other news, Turkey has launched a new ground and air cross-border offensive against Kurdish militants in northern Iraq. Turkey's defense minister says Turkey's jets and artillery struck targets belonging to the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, and commando troops then crossed into the region by land or were airlifted by helicopters. The PKK maintains bases in northern Iraq and has used the territory for attacks on Turkey. Turkey has conducted numerous cross-border operations against the group. The PKK, which has been fighting the Turkish state since 1984, is designated a terrorist organization by the U.S. and the European Union. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. Terrorist group Al-Shabaab has claimed responsibility for a murder attack on Somalia's parliament Monday that injured at least six people during a joint session. Ahmed Mohamed reports from Mogadishu. Somalia's newly elected members of parliament were meeting Monday to approve procedures for the election of its speakers when the grounds were hit by a motor shell attack. In a Facebook post, lawmaker and presidential candidate Abdurrahman Abdushakur Wasame said several rounds were fired and several people wounded, including two of his bodyguards. Somali militant group Ashabab in media posts claimed the responsibility for the attack. Somalia's office of Prime Minister Mohamed Hussein Roble condemned the assault, which it called a terrorist attack. In posts on social media, it said the attacks were cowardly attempt to intimidate parliament, which is in the process of finishing Somalia's indirect election. Roble commended the efforts of lawmakers to expedite elections. Before the attack Monday, lawmakers unanimously agreed to elect the Speaker of the Upper House on April 26th and the Speaker of the Lower House 
a day later. Somalia's indirect elections were delayed for several months because of political wrangling between the Prime Minister and President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed, known as Farmajo. Farmajo had sought to extend his term in office, but packed off under intense domestic and international pressure. Al-Shabaab has taken advantage of the political instability to launch a series of deadly attacks on Somali's security forces and politicians. Somali's lawmakers are expected to vote for the next president as early as May. Ahmed Mohammed for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. The South African Army says it is deploying 10,000 troops to areas affected by record floods to help restore power and water and support recovery missions. The death toll from the floods in the country's eastern province has risen to more than 440. The return of rains over the weekend complicated rescue efforts and contributed to the death of at least one responder. Linda Giftas reports from Durban, South Africa. Officials say 14 search and rescue teams have been dispatched from Durban's Virginia airport to recover victims of last week's deadly floods. Durban is in the hard-hit province of KwaZulu-Natal. Travis Trower is director for the volunteer organization Rescue South Africa and has been assisting with recoveries. Trower spoke to VOA by phone about the danger involved and the death of one rescuer, Busisiwe Mjuara, who along with her dog Leia drowned Sunday while searching the Msuduzi River. The more water that's falling, uh, the heavier the ground becomes, which causes more mudslides, which makes it a lot more dangerous for us. To lose somebody that is part of the team is a massive impact on everybody. Um, we, we all close to the member and to, to know that that has happened is uh, definitely sets everyone back and changes the, the tone of the rescues. Trower, who is also an emergency medical care lecturer at Nelson Mandela University, said despite the weather conditions, rescuers managed to recover six bodies Sunday. At least 443 people were confirmed dead by provincial officials. Dozens of people remain missing. In the Riverside community of Marion Hill in West Durban, the arrival of search and rescue teams Friday brought momentary relief to families of missing loved ones. Sinanklachla Manela said his 26-year-old sister and her two children were swept into the river in a landslide. Manela says local police have been overwhelmed by calls, but he hopes the arrival of a canine unit will help. No one wants to help us. Even the police, they don't want to help. They see dogs, maybe they will, they will try to help us. Further downstream, Pilisiwe Nene was among dozens of people searching the riverbanks for their neighbor's missing son. She says without a body, the family is denied a proper funeral. Give us some peace when we know where we bury the body. His mother is crying now and again all day. Spit, spit. Trower, one of the rescuers, calls the devastation vast and says it's impossible for authorities to be fully prepared for a disaster of this scale. Trower says he has seen the heartbreak in communities and rescuers are doing their best with the resources they have while keeping safety in mind. We really need to do things slowly and um, hopefully in time we'll be able to bring everyone back and um, give these families closure. But I think at the moment it's just patience. You know, it's a very difficult time 
and the guys will work. They will work until the job is done. People across the country are coming together to donate funds and resources to the KwaZulu-Natal province. President Cyril Ramaphosa has also cancelled plans to go to Saudi Arabia Tuesday so he can focus on the recovery. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Durban, South Africa. This is Science in a Minute. In past editions of Science in a Minute, we've told you about interstellar visitors to our solar system. The first visitor from outside of our solar system was the mysterious Oumuamua, discovered in 2017. Two years later, it was the first interstellar comet, 21 Borisov. In a recent Twitter tweet, Lieutenant General John Shaw of the U.S. Space Command released a memo that confirms a meteor that crashed into the Pacific Ocean after flying over Papua New Guinea in 2014 was also of interstellar origin. This memo also confirms a 2019 study by Amir Siraj and Abraham Loeb of Harvard University's Department of Astronomy. They propose the possible origin of an object they found in a catalog at NASA's Center for Near-Earth Studies came from the deep interior of a planetary system or star in the thick disk of the Milky Way. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. international edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time i am chino in washington wishing you a great day next an editorial reflecting the views of the united states government When control of Hong Kong was transferred from Britain to the People's Republic of China in 1997, the PRC agreed to govern Hong Kong under the principle of one country, two systems. According to the Sino-British Joint Declaration, for 50 years the city would enjoy a high degree of autonomy, except in foreign and defense affairs, and the laws currently in force in Hong Kong would remain basically unchanged. But as the U.S. State Department's recent Hong Kong Policy Act report shows, the PRC is tightening its vice-like grip on the city as the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover to Beijing approaches. In the words of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, over the past year, the People's Republic of China has continued to dismantle Hong Kong's democratic institutions, placed unprecedented pressure on the judiciary and stifled academic, cultural and press freedoms. Hong Kong's freedoms are diminishing while the PRC tightens its rule. The report notes that over the past year, PRC authorities took actions that eliminated the ability of Hong Kong's pro-democracy opposition to play a meaningful role in governance. Peaceful political expression critical of Beijing with a local administration was criminalized. Sweeping changes to Hong Kong's electoral system blocked the participation of political groups not approved by Beijing and greatly diminished Hong Kong voters' ability to elect representatives of their choice. Among other acts of repression, authorities shut down two of Hong Kong's largest independent media outlets, Apple Daily and Stand News, and forced the closure of the June 4th Museum, which commemorated the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. Using the 2020 national security law as a pretext, authorities filed charges against more than 160 individuals and organizations. This number includes activists and politicians detained in February 2021 for holding a primary election to elect candidates who would represent the pro-democracy camp in the Legislative Council election. Authorities also arrested and prosecuted activists for speech critical of the central or local governments or their policies, including for comments or posts on social media. 
Beijing will ultimately force many of the city's best and brightest to flee, tarnishing Hong Kong's reputation and weakening its competitiveness. A fully functioning civil society, rule of law, and individual liberties form the bedrock on which vibrant societies grow, declared Secretary Blinken. We stand with the people of Hong Kong. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 